Welcome to Living Truth Radio, a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship with Pastor Michael Lands. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. And now, here's Pastor Michael. We lift up all of those who are gathered with us this morning, whatever their situation may be, Lord, whether they need healing, whether they need work, whether they're dealing with a loss or a difficulty in life, we know you're here. And we're going to ask right now that you would extend your hand, Lord, and just do miracles in our midst, that you would touch and strengthen. And thank you for the miracle of your word. Thank you that you breathed it out, and it's profitable to us for everything we need. And we pray right now that as we navigate through this text in Genesis 2, we look at the meaning of life, we look at choices and cultivating our lives in your service. We pray that wherever you want us to go, Lord, lead us by your Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say to your church. And may you be glorified as we respond to the word with a heart of obedience and a heart to hear what our Maker says to us and our Redeemer. We lay this time at your feet, Father. Pray that you'd be pleased with what we do and you would guide every step. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Genesis 2, 4 through 17 is the text, Cultivating a Gardener. We're going to open with a summary statement in our Bibles. Genesis 2, verse 4, reads this way. This is the account. If you have the New King James, it says, this is the history. The ESV says, these are the generations. The King James, uh, I don't have the King James here, but never mind. The Hebrew word is toledot. These this is the account, these are the generations. This word, toledot, is often going to be seen in Genesis to introduce a new phase, maybe a new genealogical list or a new portion of Scripture. We'll see this over and over again, toledot. But this is the, the account of the heavens and the earth. Now, I told you that Genesis 2 is going to give us a little bit more summary and then it's going to skip around a little bit and get into more detail. And the specific detail will center in a, uh, instead of the whole universe being the picture, it's going to center in the garden. It's going to be a more localized treatment. But here we get a summary statement, the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now we do have a switch that I want to tell you about in the text, and it's in the name of God. Uh, to this point, we have had the name Elohim. It's the plural form of God. It's the triune nature of God and His creativity and His power. Now, notice in your Bible in verse 4 that it switches to the Lord God. This is going to now be Yahweh Elohim or Yahweh Elohim. Uh, why the combination? Why this different name uh, for God at this point? Because the name Yahweh is the covenant name of God. It's the relational name of God. And that's where we're moving in the text. One uh, JPS commentary says, this combination of the personal divine name Yahweh with a general term Elohim appears 29 times in the present literary unit, but only once in the Torah in Exodus 9 verse 30. It is exceedingly rare in the rest of the Bible. And so what we have is we have something that the narrator is telling us by the providence of the Holy Spirit. And he's telling us that we need to pay attention to the change in the name. The name combines the creator and the covenant, redeemer, aspects of the true God, his both creativity and his desire for relationship. So he is Yahweh Elohim. 
He is a personal God. He not only made us, He wants to know us. He could have just wound up the clock in creation and left us to ourselves, but He came to save us. And He came to redeem us back to Himself. And so there's the idea of Creator and the idea of uh, the covenant God is, is what's here. And we get a little bit more about an overview of creation. This is not all detail, but it says now, this is to prepare us for what's ahead. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. The reason for the mention of the shrub and the plant, you get some varying views on this about what this specifically is. Shrub or plant could be broken down into Hebrew words, which indicates something that comes after the fall or after the curse. That may be what the writer's after. Or he may be looking at the earlier account of the creation as a whole. And he's not into the vegetation yet. He's just telling us that this is before. And and I think mostly what he's getting at is the fact that there had been no rain yet. Look at verse 5. The Lord God, there's that name again, Yahweh Elohim, had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. So we have not hit day six yet, and this the writer's telling us, so far the earth has not known rain. This is going to prepare us for the flood account in Genesis chapters six through nine, where we will see rain come, and we will see it rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and we will see the the, uh, floods of the deep open up and, and all of that. But here's what was happening prior to rain. A mist, verse 6, Genesis 2, streams, NIV, I think mist is better here, a spring, the Septuagint has it, used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground prior to rain. And it may be that it did not rain until the actual flood, there was a mist. If you've ever woken up on a morning and you go out and your lawn looks like it's been watered for hours. There's just a dew that's come. It hasn't rained, but there's a dew on the ground. It's something like that. God had an irrigation plan that at this point did not include rain. We do know from some evidence putting Scripture with Scripture that there appeared to be a water canopy upon the earth or over the earth, and it held out ultraviolet rays. Some of you may read your Bible and you may wonder, how did people live you know, 700 and 800 and 900 years. Well, it could be attributed to the fact that ultraviolet rays were not getting through this water canopy. It had not yet rained, so the cycles were different. But a mist would come up and it would water the earth. It may have been a subterranean spring. Some believe it's the rivers that are mentioned later here were flooding or at flood stage and they watered this area. But rain has not come and that's the main point. That is here. And now the writer shifts to day six. He's skipped ahead. He's just kind of given us some bullet points. And he gets to the creation of man. He says, Then, Genesis 2 7, the Lord God formed man. If you want the transliteration from Hebrew to English, man is Ha Adam. The name for man is Adam. That's the way that you would render it in English. So God formed man. Here's the chemical components of man, of dust from the ground. Scientists do tell us that the chemical makeup of our body matches the soil of the planet. We are in some way bonded to the earth. Not in a weird new age way where we kiss trees and hug squirrels and that kind of thing. (laughs) 
But in some ways, the earth is our mother. Not in the weird New Age way, but in the way that we are connected and bonded to the planet. In fact, Adam is made from the chemical makeup of the ground. He is taken from the dust of the earth, and we will read later in Ecclesiastes, not this morning, but we've read it before, that from the dust he was taken, and to the dust he will return. Sometimes you've, you've been at a memorial service or maybe a graveside, and the, the pastor or someone will say, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. That's kind of where that comes from. Man returns to the dust, and Ecclesiastes goes on to say, and the Spirit goes back to God who gave it. Jesus made it clear that you have a soul, and that your soul is distinct from your body. That is your makeup. So in one sense, you are connected to heaven in the sense that God breathes life into us, but you're also connected to the planet. So you can think of the nature of man reflecting both those things. So God forms the man, ha-adam, Of the dust of the ground, this is minha adama. So the dust of the ground is adama, and the man is Adam. So it's a play on words in Hebrew, but there's a close connection between where man comes from and what his name is. And notice what happens now. First, First let me pause for a second and say, the word formed is a Hebrew word that pops up throughout the Old Testament, and it's the word for a potter. You can think of Jeremiah 18 where Jeremiah goes to the potter's house and he witnesses the work of a potter and it's the potter, he's got the clay on his wheel and if you've ever seen a potter do his thing, you notice that he'll put the clay on there and he begins to shape and mold the vessel that he's going to make. Well, that's what's going on in here in terms of the Hebrew language. God is the master potter and he is shaping the clay. It would be interesting if there's going to be a viewing room in heaven somewhere to see what this looked like because man, before he had life, he was in some sort of raw, lifeless form. He was made by God, which tells us something about mankind. Mankind is made with intentionality. We are not an accident. We are not an afterthought. We are not... Uh, we, don't, we don't come, our origins are not from a process of evolution. We don't come from the water. We come from the ground, at least in our initial origin. And there's a purposeful creation that occurs. God is shaping ears and molding nose, and this is in His thought. And remember, we're made in the image of God. In whatever way the physical makeup of mankind reflects God's image, It's interesting to note that God is the one shaping. Before, he would just say, and I shouldn't say just say because this is majestic, he would say, let there be light. He would speak something and it would become real in the power of his words. But now there's a more intimate uh, process in the making of man. God is directly involved. His hands are involved. He is shaping and molding like a master potter. Therefore, you and I are God's work of art. Don't just think of the outside. Think of your internal organs. Think of your circulatory system. Think of all the parts that are amazing in your body. This is all God's doing. Directly from the hand of God, He shapes mankind. He is the master potter. And He has made you for a purpose. The first man, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, 47, is of the earth. He is earthy. So one way to render this, one writer has it this way, that the The first earthling was of the earth. He was made of that stuff. And before God breathes life into him, this is what is before us. Now it is interesting that when Jesus shows up on the planet, 
He heals a blind man on the Sabbath day. This is recorded in John chapter 9. You don't have to turn there, but let me just give you a quick overview of what occurs. So the disciples are passing by. There's a blind man. They notice him. He's been blind from birth, and there's a question about who sinned, and it's a, it's a confusion of theology. In those days, people thought if you were sick or you had some congenital disease, it was a function of some sort of sin. Your parents sinned, or there was even sin in the womb or in the pre-existence they even taught in some circles. Jesus said, no, that's not what this is about. This is that the works of God may be manifest in his life. And Jesus says, while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And when he had said this, listen to this, he spat on the ground, Jesus spit on the ground, he made clay of his spit, and he applied the clay to the man's eyes who had been born blind. And he said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which translated means sent. And he, the blind man, went away and washed, and he came back home seeing. What an amazing, can you imagine if you had never seen anything before? Your whole life, you've been in darkness, you've been blind, and now this man, this Messiah, touches you. And we all know the controversy that follows, right? They ask him, who, who do you say he is? What did he do to you again? And he says, I already told you. <laughs> Why do you want to know again? And then they call his mom and dad. Is this your son? Yes. Was he born blind? Yes. Well, what happened to him? We don't know. He's old enough. Ask him. <laughs> right? And back and forth they go. And what's amazing, the patristics, the, the church fathers, and, and those who look at this particular text find something interesting. They say that in the text of John 9, you've got to see that when Jesus takes the clay and he creates this, the, 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 the dirt and the spittle and the clay, it's taking us back to Genesis 2. And Jesus does this, by the way, on Shabbat, on the Sabbath day, to stir up more controversy. But they are, they are saying that when you see him make the eyes for the blind man, it's taking you all, all the way back to the Genesis account. And in fact, what Jesus is saying, as he does many times in John, both directly and indirectly, is, I am God. How much more would you need to see if you witnessed a man born blind who had eyes made out of clay and spittle? Would you then believe now, he did much more than that. But he's making a declaration that I am God. And the term in our Genesis account, formed, indicates the act of creation by careful design. This is a Hebrew word used later in Genesis 6-5 that indicates intention, where people take uh, thoughts and form them into evil and that kind of thing. But here, in the positive sense, it's the potter shaping the clay. It's the design of God. Man is directly designed by God Almighty. And God forms him from the dust of the ground. The dust of the ground is in his very name. And now he is about to breathe into him life. Man is formed, but he appears to be lifeless. And think about the days of creation. As Mel took us through six days, God forms and fills. He makes something, and then on a later day, he fills it. He creates something, then he fills it. He forms and fills, and in the same way, he does this with man. He forms man, and then he fills man. What does he fill him with? The breath of life. He breathes life into his nostrils. God forms him, and then God makes him alive. He energizes him, and there's a parallel between creation and the breath of life and recreation as a Christian. The Bible says in Ephesians 2 that we are dead in trespasses and sins, right? 
We're not alive. People are walking around. Yeah, their heart's beating, but they're dead spiritually speaking. And we are made alive in Jesus Christ. And spiritually, the parallel is this, that you're dead in sin and trespasses. And when God breathes new life into you, what happens is the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you. And when he does, you are born again. You are truly alive. I have come that you might have what? Life and have it to the full. So there is a parallel between the Genesis account of creation and regeneration or what happens when you are born again from above. You're born again of the Holy Spirit. Adam is now going to experience the breath of God. By miracle, one writer says, breath breathed into him is warmly personal with face-to-face intimacy of a kiss and the significance that this was an act of giving as well as making and self-giving at that. At that, Man is lifeless, lifeless and he comes to life and only life comes from life. Another reason why evolution is bankrupt. You don't get life from non-life, but the biblical account is life comes from life. It comes from the ultimate life, God himself. And God breathes life into man, so man does reflect his maker. The language conveys the idea of a good puff that would revive a fire. Here's the word breath. There is a shared breath, a link between Adam and his maker. The breath may be the narrator's way of describing the infusion of the holy, excuse me, of the human spirit with its moral, intellectual, relational, and spiritual capacities. God showed tender mercy and intimate concern in the way he shaped man. Think about your capacity to think. Think about your ability to think through spiritual things and deeper philosophical realities, all those come from the maker. Now man has life, he's in a garden, and we know what's coming. Man is now going to have a choice. There's going to be the cultivation of a gardener. Now he's going to be put in a place, he now has life from his maker, but now he's going to get to choose. And two trees are going to take center stage in this garden. And we've got to ask the question, what's the purpose of the trees? Why would God give an option for evil At this point in man's history, because it goes back to the reason you were created. If I did a class right now, I had you guys surveyed, and I said, why do you think God made human beings, mankind? Some of you who have attended seminary or been around long enough would say, to glorify God. Some of you would say, we're made for the pleasure of God, and I think both of those are right on the mark. But I think it's more than that. I think we were made to fellowship with God. I think God didn't need to bother creating us, but his love is so enormous, he wanted to love more of us. And so he created us, and he created us with a capacity to love him back. There's a reciprocal love between man and God, but it's a love of choice. If it were not a love of choice, it would not be love. The reason that love has meaning is because you choose it. You might sacrifice for somebody. You might give your time to them. You may be uh, true to a covenant even when days are difficult. Why do you do that? Not because it's easy on you, but because you have made a decision to love. Love is a decision. If it weren't, it would have no meaning. If you were pre-programmed to love, then love would be rendered meaningless. So in the garden, man is confronted early in the history of the Bible's narrative with a choice. And first, God plants him. The potter plants as well. Look at verse 8. It says, The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. 
God makes the man and then he makes a home for the man. And this now points us to this place called Eden, the Garden of Eden. The common Hebrew meaning of Eden is delight. It could be even rendered Eden as a paradise of delight. Uh, Jewish scholars, some Jewish scholars see in roots of this word the idea of that which is undetermined or not yet. So they see in Eden a, a place of delight, but a not yetness to it in this sense that man's destiny is still not determined. So Eden may have some attachments to the idea of not yet or what is to come. Man has great potential both for glory and for disaster. <laughs> Because he is given the opportunity to choose. He is given the opportunity to respond to what God has given to him. The word paradise speaks of a park or a garden. Eden was some sort of paradise, a place of exceptional blessedness, happiness, delight. It's a descriptive name of heaven. The word is mentioned three times in the New Testament. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. Paul said he was taken up to the third heaven in some sort of near-death experience, 2 Corinthians 12.4, which he describes as paradise. And Jesus says we're going to be able to be in the paradise of God in Revelation 2.7. Paradise is a Persian word which speaks of a wooded park, an enclosed walled orchard, a garden with fruit trees. The Persian word pardis means a pleasure ground or a park or a king's garden. In history, we are told that if a Persian king, for example, wanted to honor somebody in the kingdom, you got this special uh, uh, award that you would be given is a day in the king's garden. You got to walk with the king in his garden and he would take you around and he would show you the beauty of it. You got kind of a special backstage pass, if you will. Well, that's really the language that the Bible gives us of paradise, Eden. It's a beautiful place. It's a place... Uh, where everything is at your fingertips. It's a garden, the Garden of Eden, mentioned uh, in 2.15, 3.23 and 24, later in Ezekiel. And so here's the man. He's been made, he's been planted. And the Bible says in Genesis 2.9, And out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight. So there was a variety in the garden. Beautiful trees. Uh, there's a young girl, I don't know if you guys have seen her paintings, but she has painted some incredible things, including the face of Jesus, and she's included colors in some of her paintings that are just mind-blowing. And it just gives you this idea, whether whatever she has experienced, the, the beauty of this place is probably beyond what we could imagine. You know, if you, if you could picture the, beautiful, the most beautiful place on earth that you've been, with trees and maybe autumn leaves and running water or whatever, you, you ain't seen nothing yet, baby. Uh, the best is yet to come. But here's where Adam is. He has direct fellowship with his maker, all this variety of trees. They're all pleasing to the sight. They're good for food. And all of a sudden, with all the trees that are there, that are there we're told about two trees that take center stage. There's the tree of life, middle of verse 9, also in the midst of the garden, it's in the middle, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This tree will be the one that the serpent will 
entice Eve with because it is pleasant to the eyes. It's able to make one wise. It looks good for food. And she will be enticed by her desire, implanted, tempted by the serpent. We'll talk about that in Genesis 3. But for now, there are two trees that are there. They take center stage. We know the tree of life for sure is in the midst of the garden. It's in the middle. We're told that plainly. We don't know if the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is right there as well. We don't know if there's two trees side by side or if the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is elsewhere. The language could allow, I think, for both. But there's two trees. One tree brings life. The other tree brings what? Death. This is Living Truth Radio, and we have the privilege of coming over this station to you. But um, the privilege does have a cost, and we just want to take a moment to let you know that we want to thank you for praying for us and partnering with us on Living Truth Radio. There's a way that you can give to this radio broadcast. We do have some wonderful open doors, but we do need you to partner with us in prayer and in giving. If you can give to the ongoing radio ministry of Living Truth, we deeply appreciate it. Uh, When Oscar and I walk into this studio and we have Cameron doing recording for us, none of us get paid to do radio. We're doing it because it's a passion. If you can partner with us, we'd appreciate it. Here's how you can help us out. You can go to livingtruthradio.org. That's livingtruthradio.org. Click on the Donate tab. You'll see a picture of Pastor Michael there. Make sure that when you go to the PayPal account, you indicate that your gift is for radio ministry. If you'd like to send a gift, you can send it to Living Truth 1009, Arsenal Way, think of the armor of God, Corona, California 92880. Again, that is Living Truth 1009, Arsenal Way, Corona, California 92880. If you have any needs that we can help you with, you can always give us a call. The office is open on the West Coast here in Southern California, Tuesday through Friday from 9 to about 5 in the afternoon. Our number is 951-735-2856. You can find out all that information and directions to Living Truth Christian Fellowship in the city of Corona by going to our website. If you're ever in the area, we'd love to have you come and worship with us. We have services at 9 and 11.15 a.m. We have a lot of things for kids. We have child care, Sunday school classes that run concurrent with the services. And you can find out all those details one more time at livingtruthradio.org. On behalf of Oscar Santa Cruz and Cameron Thomas, this is Pastor Michael Lance. We'll catch you next time on Living Truth Radio. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast. Living Truth Radio is a listener-supported ministry, and we have an opportunity to expand our reach. We exist to build up believers and reach out with the gospel to others. And we need you, our listening family, to partner with us in prayer and in giving in order to do that. You can give in a couple different ways. One way is to go online to livingtruthradio.org, or you can send in your offering to Living Truth Christian Fellowship, 1009 Arsenal Way, Corona, California, 92880. Thank you for listening to today's program. If you'd like to listen to this message again, learn more about our church in Corona, or to access archived messages, Go to livingtruthradio.org and click on the church tab. You can follow us on Instagram at livingtruthcorona or download the Living Truth Christian Fellowship app on Apple and Android devices. 
Living Truth Radio is a listener-supported ministry. You can partner with us by donating at livingtruthradio.org.